Grace, mercy, and peace be to you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, a good story can be used to teach valuable lessons. I'm sure some of you have remembered reading or hearing some of Aesop's fables. I'm going to put you a little quiz to you this morning. What's the moral of the story of the rabbit and the turtle who have a race? Slow and steady wins the race. That's very good. You guys did better than the first service. All right. <laughs> Not that there's a competition. Uh, what, about, uh, what about Peter and the wolf? Don't cry, wolf. That's kind of an obvious one, isn't it? Right. Anyway, there's, there's others, of course, but these two alone can, can illustrate the point that, that stories teach. Or, since we're in the church, we're going to say parables preach. Right? Jesus used parables frequently in his, in his preaching and his teaching. Today we hear one about the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it goes like this. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, before we jump into the moral of this story, I think we should examine the characters. And we'll call them characters because in this parable, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector stand for two types of people. And these types of people, the way that they view themselves in relation to God and in relation to others. Now, contrary to the spirit camp song, I Just Want to Be a Sheep, where we sing a stanza that says, I don't want to be a Pharisee because they're not fair, you see. Yeah. The Pharisees were actually respected members of Jewish society. They were, they were pious. They were religious. They were actually a, a model of what an upright citizen should look like, the, the epitome of the Jewish man. So if you were a first century Jewish man, you would have aspired possibly to be a Pharisee. The tax collectors, by contrast, were the dregs of Jewish society. They were viewed as the turncoats. They were working for the enemy, the Roman occupiers of the promised land. They were unclean as they had on, uh, dealings with Gentiles. They handled money with graven images, coins struck with the image of a false god named Caesar. And so they were accused of breaking the first commandment, according to the religiously right Pharisees. It's safe to say that no one in Jewish culture really aspired to be a tax collector. Two different types of people. Listen again how the character of the Pharisee thinks of himself in relation to God and in relation to others. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now he's kind of listing some, some of the, the, the uh, 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 commandments that would be broken. And he goes even higher than what's expected in the law. He says, I fast twice a week. And not only just giving a tithe on the things that I earn, 
but I tithe on all the things that I get. God, you should be so lucky to have me on your team. Look at what I do. Pay attention and take notice that I'm not like the lawless ones who break the commandments of God. I give 110%. I, 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 me, me, me. So by contrast, here again, how the character of the tax collector thinks of himself in relation to God and others. He doesn't say anything. He's standing far off. He's not even drawing near in the temple to where the altar is. He doesn't draw near that, that, to the altar of God. He doesn't, even, he doesn't even look up into heaven, which would be the posture of prayer. But he hangs his head low in shame and humility. Now, whether this attitude is due to the expressed feelings of, of disgust from fellow Jews or whether it was just the internal disappointment of, of having to work with the Gentiles, or, or simply, simply that his heart was filled with sorrow and contrition over his own sin, he confesses that he doesn't have a leg to stand on before God, the Holy One of Israel. And the only thing he says is, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He simply pleads for mercy. He knows that he is a sinner. He feels it from without and from within. He rightly knows who he is, and the only right thing to do is to beg God for mercy. The moral of this story, Jesus tells us, trust not in yourself, but in the Lord. As Jesus said, the sinner goes away justified, but the Pharisee does not. This parable preaches, the story teaches. Now, it's interesting because in Genesis we see a similar story, but this time it's not just with characters. They are two people, real people, brothers in fact. We're not to treat this as a parable or a fable of Aesop. Right? The story of these brothers is the, the origin of the characters that we find in Jesus' parable. Cain and Abel, they set the pattern. They show the contrast between those who are self-righteous, like the Pharisees, and those who know that they are sinners and cry out to God in mercy, like the tax collectors. The brothers are the first children of Adam and Eve. Now, the Lord had promised to Adam and Eve that one born of a woman would crush the head of the serpent, referring to Satan, after the fall into sin. This was a huge deal, a huge promise. This was a gracious show of mercy by God who created them. Now, Adam and Eve, they had felt their, 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 their sin and their shame, and they had tried to hide from God. The Lord sought them out, and he speaks a word of promise to them. A word that promises that he will act in justice and mercy. And this would be enfleshed in the form of a child born to the woman. 
So a child would fulfill this promise to Adam and to Eve. And so when Eve conceived and bore her first child, she named him Cain, which means gotten. Adam and Eve named their firstborn son Cain because they believed that they had gotten that fulfillment of the Lord's promise. They believed that Cain was going to be the crusher of the serpent's head. What more could they possibly need or want? Well, Eve conceived and bore a second son. He named him Abel. You know, someone, in, uh, someone today might call an unexpected uh, child a, a bonus baby, right? There's positive connotations that go along with that. Of course, the child would have a name, but in the family, you'd always refer to that one as, well, that's our bonus child. The name Abel is similar to the title bonus baby or bonus child, but not with the same positive connotations. Abel actually means vanity, unneeded, unnecessary. For Adam and Eve, they believed that they already had all that they needed or wanted in the person of Cain, the supposed gotten one, to fulfill the Lord's promise. So, Abel? It's just not that special. It's vanity. We read a little bit more. It says, in the course of time, both brothers brought an offering to the Lord. They brought it to the altar of God. After many years of being called gotten and vanity the brothers believed what their parents and others said about them. They felt it in their inner being. They believed it to the core. Cain was puffed up in his pride, his ego swollen to epic proportions. He felt like he was God's good gift to all creation as the apparent promised child and as such didn't see a need for God's mercy. You could almost hear him bringing his offering to the Lord. Well, you should be so thankful that I'm here, God. Look at what I'm offering to you. I'm the promised one after all. But then you have Abel. Abel who trusted nothing in himself, but depended entirely upon the Lord's mercy. You can almost hear him thinking in his mind, perhaps it's true, perhaps my brother Cain is the promised child, but nevertheless, I know that I'm not. And I look to the Lord for his mercy and for his grace, and I come to him in faith. So they both stood before the the Lord, much like the Pharisee and the tax collector in, in Jesus' parable. The brothers stood before the Lord, and they laid their offerings upon the altar, Now, both offerings were good as far as what was presented, by the way. Cain, who worked the ground like his father, uh, Adam, laid an offering from the land upon the altar of the Lord. And Abel, who tended the flock, laid an appropriate offering from from the flock upon the altar. There was nothing wrong with what they were offering the Lord. What was wrong had to do with the heart had to do with the attitude of the one who is making the offering upon the altar. 
Cain in the pride like the Pharisees offers his portion to the Lord and Abel in humility and faith like the character of the tax collector offers his portion to the Lord. And what happens? Cain is not justified by the Lord. His offering is rejected by the Lord. But Abel? Abel is justified by the Lord. He is offering is acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. Cain sought to justify himself. But Abel was justified by his faith. Two accounts of people coming before the altar of the Lord. Two types of people who come before the altar of God. So what, what do we make of this? How is God shaping us in the hearing of these texts this morning? Well, it would certainly be easy to turn this into a simple lesson of morality. Don't be like Cain or the Pharisees, but be like Abel and the tax collectors. Well, this isn't some simple fable of Aesop. See, the truth of the matter is that by nature, we all, every single one of us, stand before the altar of God as Cain and the Pharisee. We are steeped in pride. We focus on who we are. We care about what others say of us, especially when they speak highly of us. We would like to think that we have no need for mercy, for we are self-made. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're in need of mercy from no one because mercy is for the weak. But see, this is self-delusion brought upon by self-deception, by society's views, by Satan's lies. By nature, we would view all that we have to bring to the altar of the Lord as either something that we worked hard to obtain or something that was owed us. By nature, there is no way to change this view of who we are. But faith, faith sees things in a different light. Faith is, first and foremost, a gift from God. You don't earn faith. You don't produce faith, especially when the object of that faith is Christ Jesus. Jesus, the truly begotten one. The fulfillment of the promise to Adam and Eve. Jesus, who is the friend of of sinners and tax collectors, the receiver of Abel's blood, the one who sheds his own blood for all. He is the giver of mercy, the author and the perfecter of faith. That is Jesus. And he is for the lowly and for the outsider, for the poor and the, the meek, the beggar, And the thing with Jesus is that he lavishes all the riches of heaven upon you, and look, he even calls you by name. He calls you by his name. And you, in baptism, become a child of promise. See, faith is a gift. 
It's given by the Holy Spirit as you hear what God says about you. Yes, it's true, you are a sinner. Yes, it's true, you don't deserve anything from God except his anger and his punishment. And no, you do not have a leg to stand on before the Holy One of all creation. Yet you are a sinner for whom Christ Jesus died. You are the object of his love. You are the object of his grace and his mercy. It is by the blood of Christ that you stand before this altar. First and foremost, to receive in faith his gifts. And then, in faith, to present all that you are, all that you have, as an offering pleasing and acceptable to the Lord. Now, you might think, brothers and sisters in Christ, that given that today is Loyalty Sunday, that I somehow chose these texts for this occasion, I'm not that smart. These are the appointed texts for the 20th Sunday after Pentecost. But I tell you the truth, the theme could not have been better timed. Particularly as we come before the altar of the Lord today. As God's people here to receive his gifts of grace and mercy. And then to present our offerings, our commitments to the Lord on this altar. After we confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed and And come before the altar of God and cry out to him in mercy in the prayer of the church. We will have an opportunity to present our offerings to the Lord. As we sing the song or the hymn that we have been singing at the close of the previous services. We give thee but thy own. We'll have an opportunity to lay our our commitments of our treasure before the Lord on the altar in humility, and with thanksgiving. If you're concerned about coming up and down these stairs, uh, ask one of the ushers, and they will gladly present your um, uh, commitment, place it on the altar uh, for you. So dear brothers and sisters in Christ, come. Come before the altar of the Lord in faith. Come before the altar of the Lord in humility. Come to the altar of the Lord to receive mercy. Come before the altar of the Lord with an attitude of thanksgiving for the gifts that he has so graciously given. Come before the altar acknowledging that all that you have is his alone and a trust from Christ the King. Amen. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.